1961, Professor John Wilson of London University reported something very strange from his time in Africa. He and his team were with a group of rural Africans, and since it was the 1960s, they're only referred to as Africans. I couldn't find out where exactly they were located, what ethnicity they were, what language they spoke. All I could find out was that they were somewhere south of the Sahara, somewhere under British colonial control, maybe Kenya, but that's all I could find. Anyways, according to John Wilson at least, he and his team were showing about 30 of these rural Africans a five minute long film in which a man demonstrates how to get rid of standing water, presumably to try and show ways of not attracting mosquitoes. In the film, the man moves slowly as he drains pools, as he puts away empty tins so they don't fill up with water, that sort of thing. When the film had ended, Wilson and his team asked the Africans what they had seen. Many of them quickly replied, we saw the chicken. This is quite a baffling response to Wilson and his team because, as far as they were aware, there wasn't a chicken in the film, and even if there was, it was certainly nowhere near the main point of the film. They went back to the film and inspected it closely, and yeah, when the man was picking up some tins that had water in them, for a brief moment, a frightened chicken flew across the bottom right corner of the frame. After further questioning, the Africans said, yeah, they'd seen a man too, but they didn't really pay attention to what he was doing for some reason. What they were mainly concerned with was this chicken. What could explain this discrepancy between what the Africans saw and what John Wilson and his team wanted them to see? Well, a man named Marshall McLuhan has an answer, but it's going to take a little bit of explaining to get to. When you put a new medium into a play in a, in a given population, all their sensory light shifts a bit, sometimes shifts a lot. This changes their outlook, their attitudes, changes their feelings about studies, about school, about Politics. Well, every technology has its own ground rules, as it were. It decides uh, all sorts of uh, arrangements in other spheres. Well, now, what about uh, the future? Uh, I know you suggest that uh, we're always behind ourselves in realizing what's going on. One we're always living a way ahead of our thinking, yes. So, hello. Sean Zabashi here. Hope you're having a wonderful day, whatever day it is for you. Um, welcome to the inaugural episode of Dilettantry. Um, as I alluded to, this first series is going to be mainly investigating the life and ideas of Marshall McLuhan, who is typically described as a philosopher of technology, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. This series is going to be pretty wide-ranging because McLuhan's writing was all over the place. American literary critic Leslie Fiedler said that Marshall McLuhan was two-thirds an absolutely fascinating analyst of society and culture, and one-third mad. Lee Dreyfus said that listening to Marshall McLuhan is like attempting to drink from a fire hydrant. That's what I found, too. One paragraph, McLuhan will be talking about quantum physics, the next talking about Humpty Dumpty. Then he'll quote from James Joyce. Then he'll quote from, like, a scholar talking about the economy of 17th century China or something. So, be warned. The economist and philosopher, Kenneth Boulding, said that it's not possible to give a rational summary of McLuhan's ideas. Unfortunately, that is what I set out to do, so let's see how that goes. Since McLuhan is two-thirds an absolutely fascinating analyst and one-third mad and can be rationally summarized and all that, I will be bringing in and looking at a lot of other people's writings and thoughts to Grand McLuhan, scholars who are a little bit more normal. There are two ways to examine a thinker. You can look at just their writings, or you can look at both their writings and the context from which they came, the thinker's life. Just text or text and context, in other words. There's an idea that looking at the biography of a thinker can muddy your view of their thoughts. Now, when you read their text, you're biased because of what you know about their, from your perspective, terrible political beliefs. Or you keep trying to read their philosophy, but you can't stop thinking about how they killed that guy. Maybe on purpose, maybe by accident, that fateful October. <laughs> um, McLuhan didn't kill anybody, that's just an example. The point is, maybe you want to analyze the thoughts on the page, and knowing about the thinker affects your analysis. 
While I can kind of see the point to this, I usually prefer analyzing someone while taking their biography into account, especially if I'm doing a deep dive like in this series. I think it's interesting to try and find out how the ideas grew, who or what they were inspired by, as well as their life in general. You start to uncover whole constellations of influence and refutation, webs and lineages of how certain strains of thought move through history. Arsh McLuhan certainly has beliefs I disagree with, but most of them don't come through too much in his writing. There are a few biographies of McLuhan. I mainly relied on Terence Gordon's version, called Escape into Understanding. And don't worry if you find biographical details boring. We'll get into McLuhan's thought very shortly. Marsha McLuhan was born in Edmonton, Canada, on the 21st of July, 1911. He was born to Herbert, who ran a real estate business in Edmonton, and Elsie, a school teacher, then an actress and elocutionist. Elocution is a word I had to look up. It means articulate and expressive speaking, especially with clear pronunciation. My guess is that an elocutionist would give people lessons on how to speak clearly, but I'm not, I'm not too sure. The fact that his mother was an elocutionist kind of nicely foreshadows one of McLuhan's topics of interest in his writings, the difference between writing and speech. Marshall had a brother two years younger than him named Maurice. When he was young, Marshall was pretty antisocial and bad at school. He failed the 6th grade and was only able to get through to the 7th because his mom was still a school teacher and was able to pull some strings. Even though he was bad at school, he was still curious. There's a story of him finding a book on determinism and telling his brother, you see this fly? You see how it moves? Well, if it lifted the other leg instead, the whole universe would come to an end. This is another good foreshadowing of how later he would take an interest in grand ideas and academics would, for the most part, sneer at him. McLuhan brought this sneering on himself a bit, though. He would say things like, Some of my fellow academics are very hostile, but I sympathize with them. They've been asleep for 500 years, and they don't like anybody who comes along and stirs them up. We'll get into all that. In the seventh grade, he had a teacher that piqued his interest in literature. He eventually started growing out of his shell, doing normal teenage things like sports, boy scouts, delivering papers, building model sailboats. That last one eventually led to him building a full-size sailboat with his friends when he was 17. His post-secondary stage of schooling began at the University of Manitoba in the engineering program, but after a year of school and a summer of related work, he decided it wasn't for him and transferred into a Bachelor of Arts program that combined history, English, and philosophy. Overwhelmed by the amount of writing that had already taken place in those fields and craving mastery, he made a very strict reading program for himself. He had this weird theory that to see if you like a book, you should turn to page 69 and see if you like that page. I don't know if that's a sex joke or what. I don't think so, because he was pretty conservative, but I thought it was weird enough to mention. Anyways, after a while of this diligent study, he began to think less of his professors, saying stuff like, A little discussion with a prof often shows you that their reading has not been all-embracing, even of the great things. It makes you feel that some time and some good work would soon place you far beyond them. And great creative or great critical work never comes from them. You can kind of start to see one reason academics might have been less than fond of him later in his life. Um, I Oh, I should mention, he's not like raising his head in class and being like, me, 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 me. McLuhan kept a diary, so we can see lots of his thoughts that he didn't want to make public. Uh, or a journal, right? Diaries are for girls, journals are for boys. Isn't that the rule? Anyways, as a result of these views on academics, he didn't want to stay in academia as a professor or anything. He spent his summers hungrily reading as well, with the same discipline as in his academic year. He drifted away from his mother, who had a temper and a dissatisfaction, but grew close to his father for a period of time, having long discussions about various academic topics with him, inspiring his father to become more learned, especially in psychology. This relationship would be mirrored years later, when Marshall would partner with his son to write his final book. But with the Great Depression and his father's demotion, the relationship faltered. 
Marshall McLuhan believed in God, both sides of his family being Baptist. He and his father talked about using psychology and metaphysics to understand Jesus' words in new ways, as well as talking about moral and social laws that controlled or guided humanity. Marshall notes in his diary that he found Aldous Huxley, the writer of Brave New World, to be expressing similar ideas to the ones formed in conversations with his father. Throughout university, he would attend Bible class at a local church, although he found his self-study of the Bible usually more illuminating. He would debate both evolutionists and the religious with ferocity. He found sermons so dull and his own religious and philosophical forays so interesting that he drifted away from the Baptist church while remaining a believer in God. And for all the atheists listening, don't worry, his religion obviously affects how he thinks, but he doesn't make too much explicit mention of his belief in his writings. Uh, I'm not religious, and I still found his thinking interesting. Despite his initial feelings, McLuhan grew more enamored with academia as he progressed in it, wanting to continue his studies post-graduation and entertaining the idea of becoming a professor. He would analyze the methods of his teachers. McLuhan enjoyed discussions with friends and classmates, often defending positions he didn't hold just for intellectual amusement. Between 1930 and 1934, he wrote a bunch of articles, mainly for the outlet The Manitoban. Among the recurring themes was a dislike of the general methods of academia, the formality and the utilitarianism, as well as McLuhan's youthful contrarianism and provocation. Or I shouldn't say youthful, <laughs> that continued. Um, you can find many of them still online at the University of Manitoba's website. A friend gave McLuhan a book called What's Wrong with the World by G.K. Chesterton, became a major influence and eventually led McLuhan to convert to Catholicism and gave him inspiration. McLuhan overprepared for exams, lamenting that a richly stored mind is anything but an asset in a two-hour examination. In 1934, he left the University of Manitoba with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's in English, writing about George Meredith, a poet and novelist of the 19th century, for his thesis. McLuhan then went to Cambridge, arriving in October 1934. He started working towards a second bachelor's degree. He quickly gained favor among faculty and senior students. Although he still complained about many dull professors, he did find some to look up to. For example, Mansfield Forbes, an English lecturer, whose first lecture of the year impressed McLuhan with its breadth. He was also greatly influenced by his professor of the philosophy of rhetoric, I.A. Richards. I.A. Richards's work led to the New Criticism Movement in Literary Theory, a movement that was what's called formalist, meaning it just looks at the text. A poem isn't a reflection of the author's psychology or culture or moment in history or whatever. It's a self-contained artistic object. Close reading of texts is a big part of it. By going through McLuhan's biography right now, I'm not approaching him in a formalist way. Anyways, Richards was another influence of McLuhan's at Cambridge, especially regarding poetry and symbolism. Although McLuhan disagreed with some of his tendencies, like what McLuhan describes as Richards' goal to, quote, establish intellectualist culture, it's the only religion worthy of a rational being, unquote. What this means is that Richards didn't believe in the eternal qualities of things like good with a capital G, love with a capital L, or hope with a capital H, but he did believe there was an objective, universal, eternal method of literary criticism, so maybe contradictory. McLuhan called this, in his personal writings, ghastly atheistic nonsense that made him want to join a bomb-hurling society. <laughs> During his first year at Cambridge, his mother and brother left Winnipeg for Toronto, likely because his parents split up. They kept up appearances, though. McLuhan also started exploring the poet T.S. Eliot's work, becoming a big fan. He said that the works of Eliot, quote, transform and diffuse and recoalesce the commonest everyday occurrences of 20th century city life, and have the uncanny capacity to hang all the terror of eternity on a common phrase, unquote. 
I love that, hang all the terror of eternity on a common phrase. Something you'll see is that McLuhan has a way with words. He's very quotable. He saw a partial reflection of himself in Eliot, saying that they have similar views on Christianity, religion itself, the interpretation of history, and industrialism. After reading Eliot's essay, Thoughts After Lambeth, McLuhan declared him the greatest poet and critic of literature in English. McLuhan graduated his Bachelor of Arts with second-class honors, meaning he could be admitted to Cambridge's graduate program. At the same time, he was offered a position in the English department at the University of Wisconsin as an assistant teacher, and he took up the offer. At the time, he said he felt pleasantly cynical, longing to be back in England. He talked to and was inspired by many Christians, as his own religious views were constantly shifting and updating. After talking to a student about Catholicism, showing his depth of knowledge of the subject, the student asked why he wasn't in church, so he promptly converted on the 25th of March, 1937. As I said, his religiosity doesn't come through that much in his writing, from what I could tell. Um, and maybe I'm just blind to it, because I'm not religious, and I wasn't raised religious, so that's always a possibility. But it was clearly important to him, since he remained a Catholic throughout his life. Besides G.K. Chesterton, another major influence of his was Thomas Aquinas. He even described himself as a Thomist sometimes. Both of these figures also converted to Catholicism. Um, some of his quotes regarding religion... <clears throat> as long as the example of Jesus Christ stands before us, let everyone be ashamed of even a moment of self-complacency. I am of a critical and inquiring nature, but the true Christian experience, reception of the Holy Ghost, is a fact that transcends analysis. And one more. Belief in God alters existence, making it mystical and converting a leaden, uninspired human into something lyrically superhuman. Unquote. If anyone's interested about this side of McLuhan, there's a book entitled The Medium and the Light, which is a compilation of his religious writings, mixing the few published public examples with examples from his private correspondence. I didn't read that one, though. Anyways, his cynicism became less pleasant during his time in Madison, so he applied for and received a teaching position at St. Louis University, a Catholic school. McLuhan met his future wife, Corrine, while in California with his mother in the summer, which led to a flurry of letters throughout the fall. She was an actress and school teacher from Fort Worth, Texas, just like his mom, who was happy to find someone with whom she could have literary discussions of sufficient depth with. He spent New Year's Eve with her and her reluctant family, who not only disliked Catholics due to their Episcopalianism, who not only disallowed their daughters dating, but even disallowed them from having female friends unless their families had known each other for two generations. Uh, probably a pretty awkward dinner then. In June, they were engaged. In August, they got married. Marshall's friend from the philosophy department was best man. Corinne's cousin was bridesmaid. And only one other person, the best man's wife, was in attendance. After briefly visiting her family, they traveled to Italy for their honeymoon, then went to Cambridge because McLuhan needed to stay in residence for a year as a requirement for his doctorate. On their first full day in England, England declared war. In January of 1940, McLuhan was awarded his master's and his PhD research was going well. He wrote another article entitled 50 Million Mama's Boys, writing about his negative views of American men, possibly as a result of having to compete with them over his wife. To his brother, he said, quote, Texas men are incredibly infantile, and of course as tough outside as they are slushy inside, unquote. Uh, apologies to any Texans listening. The views and opinions expressed by McLuhan are those of McLuhan only do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of this podcast. In September of 1940, McLuhan began teaching in St. Louis again. He started incorporating films into his lectures as a way to connect to contemporary culture. He called films the opium of the people, revising that famous Marx quote, 
He and Corrine had a son in January 1942 who they named Eric. During this time, McLuhan was working on his PhD, which eventually formed around this dude named Thomas Nash, a playwright, poet, satirist, and pamphleteer who lived in the last half of the 1500s. McLuhan realized that Nash needed some contextualization. This led McLuhan to do a thorough study of rhetoric in that period across Europe. This led to a survey of the entire history of rhetoric, beginning with Cicero in ancient Rome. This led to a study of the modes of education throughout those centuries. And this led to an investigation of grammar and dialectics. Whew. His thesis undergirds a lot of his later writings, so I should perhaps explain a little bit. Let's go into a brief whirlwind of history. In education, starting in antiquity, ancient Greece and Rome, there was a distinction between practical arts and liberal arts. Practical arts were things like medicine or architecture. Liberal arts had seven categories. These seven categories were divided into two parts, the trivium and the quadrivium. The trivium was taught first, it was the basics. And then the quadrivium was taught after. Uh, it consisted of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. McLuhan's work was focused on the trivium, though, which consisted of grammar, logic or dialectic, and rhetoric. Simply put, grammar deals with the basics of language, the logistics, the mechanics. Uh, logic or dialectic deals with thought, like figuring out whether an argument has a fallacy, that kind of thing. And rhetoric deals with using this grammar and logic to communicate with or persuade someone else. One common way of describing it is that grammar is the word on the page, dialectic is the word in the mind, and rhetoric is the word out of the mouth. The trivium played a big part in McLuhan's thinking and writing for the rest of his life. I'm going to give you a summary of his thesis here, but keep in mind that his later studies added a lot to his view of the trivium. McLuhan is a grammarian in terms of method of analysis and a rhetorician in terms of delivery of his ideas to the public, since he wasn't a dull, dry academic when expressing his thought. He loved wordplay and is incessantly quotable. Reading him every couple lines ago, oh, that's an interesting way of saying that, like he calls the Cold War the hot piece for no discernible reason besides playfulness. So most people know what rhetoric is. McLuhan was good at expressing himself to others and keeping their attention. That's easy. The harder part is this contrast between dialectic and grammar. Nowadays, grammar just means saying, Mike and I went to the store, instead of me and Mike went to the store. Right? Like all those dumb rules. But throughout history, it meant much more. It can mean a method of analyzing the world as though it was a text, looking for symbols and analogies and stuff like that. Or it can mean the idea that metaphysical truth can be attained by looking at the grammatical structure of ordinary language like uh, the Mediste of Northern Europe in the 13th and 14th centuries, if you want an example. But a lot more on this later. Dialectic, too, meant much more throughout history, but many of you might be unaware of what is meant by it today. It's not exactly a common word amongst the general public. Today, dialectics is associated with Aristotle, Hegel, or Marx, um, but probably mostly Hegel and Marx. Hegel was a famous German philosopher in the early 1800s. I'm sure many of you have at least heard of him. He, he's also famously confusing, so I'm probably going to get this not completely correct, since I haven't read him. Uh, maybe not even slightly correct. This is just to tease out the history of the term dialectic, not fully explain Hegel in two minutes. Many people nowadays associate with dialectic with Hegel, because he kind of reformulated the term by applying it to his theory of history. The Hegelian dialectic is usually summed up as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. But this actually comes from a philosopher from the same time, Fichte, not Hegel. Since it's so common, though, I'll quickly explain what it means. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis are steps in a sequence. Thesis comes first, then antithesis, then synthesis. Thesis is just a proposition, or the initial thing you start with. 
like a dumb simplistic example would be like maybe a scientist 500 years ago would have the thesis all birds fly then the antithesis is something that contradicts that thesis maybe the scientist read a report from an explorer who went to africa and saw an ostrich or antarctica and saw a penguin both of these are flightless birds which contradicts the thesis all birds fly a synthesis is something that takes both the thesis and the antithesis into account and tries to make it work. A synthesis here would be most birds fly or all birds have feathers or something. This is a pretty dumb example. Um, but Hegel's terms were closer to abstract, negative, concrete. The thesis-antithesis-synthesis way of describing dialectic is a good start, maybe. But you could look at it and say, okay, that's all well and good. But it looks like the thesis doesn't need an antithesis. What if you just get it right the first time? Plus, the thesis-antithesis-synthesis description makes it seem like it's up to us, looking at a thesis, to come up with an antithesis. But Hegel says that the dialectic is inherent to things. Hegel describes history as a dialectical process. Stages of history are abstract and seem stable, but they contain contradictions that provide the negative, disrupting the existing stage and providing the impetus for a new paradigm, the concrete. But this new paradigm will also have contradictions and the process continues. Or something like that. <laughs> I might be completely off base here. Then Marx took up the idea of Hegel's dialectic and applied it to matter, physical things and how they are organized. Much of Marx's writings were describing the internal contradictions of capitalism, which he thought would lead through the dialectical process to an overthrowing and a replacement of the capitalist system with something new. So that's what most people associate dialectic with currently, if they know the term. But if we go back in history a bit before Hegel, we see that dialectics has a prominent role in medieval schooling and what was called scholasticism. Scholasticism was a school of philosophy and a method of education that was prominent from around 1100 to 1700. Dialectics was a main method of inquiry in both the philosophy and education. The educational variety is essentially reading a text to a bunch of students or asking a particular question. Then students would provide a counter-argument to the text or an answer to the question. Then others would argue against the counter-argument or answer, with the hope that through this series of arguments and counter-arguments, the truth will be reached at some point. Thesis, antithesis, 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 and then finally, maybe synthesis. This is called disputation. Hegel and Marx and scholasticism, as well as Aristotle, are the main things associated with dialectics. In his thesis, McLuhan spends a great amount of time detailing how the three components of the trivium relate to and interact with each other. He thinks that his contemporaries failed to understand ancient and medieval grammar, and that since the Renaissance, historians of rhetoric have in large part ignored the Middle Ages. He also spends a lot of time talking about what's called the five canons of rhetoric. The act of rhetoric has a long history, stretching back to Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt, and Confucius and ancient China. People love trying to convince each other, I guess. In ancient Greece, philosophers began to study public speaking in a more organized and in-depth way through people like the Sophists, like Protagoras, Gorgias, and Isocrates, then through Aristotle. Plato spends a lot of time arguing against the Sophists. He dislikes them because he thinks their use of rhetoric was focused on convincing people rather than discovering what's true. They were anti-philosophical or anti-truth in his view. Aristotle had much more thorough thoughts about rhetoric. He divided the topic up into categories. The five canons of rhetoric, however, was a concept developed in ancient Rome, mainly by orators like Cicero and Quintilian. McLuhan thinks that Cicero's thought and the tradition that follows him is of utmost importance in the history of Western culture. He says that it hasn't been adequately examined, not because scholars don't care, but because the Ciceronian tradition is so common that it's often imperceptible, like water to a fish or air to a human. 
Anyways, the five canons of rhetoric are invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. Invention is creating arguments. Arrangement is organizing arguments in the best way. Style is figuring out how to present the arguments. Memory is memorizing the arguments. Uh, I guess in the olden days, it was bad form to have notes. Or I guess they would be lugging a big tablet in, <laughs> which is uh, impractical. And delivery is stuff like the tone of voice, pace of speech, gestures, that sort of stuff. At the end of his life, McLuhan began to have some very grand ideas about these five canons, applying it to a lot of things in the world. McLuhan's thesis contends that after the fall of the Roman Empire, the church preserved grammar as its mode of theological education until it was overthrown by dialectic with the scholasticism we talked about earlier. McLuhan wants to view 16th century humanists like Nash as continuations of medieval traditions, themselves continuations of the Greeks. If his thesis is correct, the history of European literature would be cast in a new light. Things would have new causes. McLuhan begins with a history of the first thousand years of the Trivium, until St. Augustine, then the second millennium from Augustine to Peter Abelard and Abelard to Erasmus. Don't worry about remembering these names, by the way. He thinks that to truly understand the Renaissance and Middle Ages, one must understand the Trivium and how the parts of the Trivium interacted and conflicted with each other through both different intellectual schools of thought and through different educational traditions. These schools of thought and traditions placed more emphasis on certain parts of the Trivium and less on others, affecting their thinking and application generally. For example, St. Augustine, who existed in the late 300s and early 400s, placed a lot of emphasis on grammar in both science and theology. He was also influenced by Cicero's ideas about oration, speaking out loud, which obviously involves rhetoric. Everyone knows about the Italian Renaissance in the 15th and 16th centuries, but something a little less known is that the Middle Ages had three Renaissances too. This was slowly noticed as historians started moving away from the idea that the Middle Ages were just the Dark Ages, right? There were ups and downs within. Um, Renaissance just means revival, so these were periods of cultural revival. Um, so the three Renaissances are the Carolingian in the 8th and 9th centuries, the Atonian in the 10th, and what's unimaginatively called the 12th century Renaissance. The Carolingian Renaissance is mainly associated with Charlemagne, and took inspiration from the Christian Roman Empire of the 4th century. This included the Augustinian stress on grammar. Then scholasticism came into European universities starting around 1100, and put less of a stress on grammar and highlighted dialectic. As I mentioned earlier, the common method in these scholastic universities was disputation. Someone would ask a question related to some topic of inquiry, and others would respond with criticism, then a counterproposal would be issued, responding to their criticisms, etc., etc. It was a rigorous method of resolving contradictions. Famous figures of this movement are Thomas Aquinas and Peter Abelard and William of Ockham of Ockham's Razor fame. Scholasticism is generally seen to have died out around 1700. Grammar was shoved to the side generally, except for in Italy with a few key figures. Erasmus of the late 1400s and early 1500s, a very important humanist scholar, rejected the primacy of dialectics and sought to restore grammar to some degree, setting the stage for a base of grammar in 16th century theology and science, especially with Francis Bacon, something not that well noted before McLuhan's research. In the 16th century in France, there was this academic debate called the Quarrel of the Ancients and the Moderns, which was pretty much an argument over whether the Enlightenment had surpassed the knowledge of antiquity, over whether current writers can do no better than imitating the writers of antiquity, or if the writers of antiquity could be surpassed. McLuhan contextualizes this debate as a continuation of medieval dialecticians versus medieval grammarians, which was a continuation of conflicts in antiquity. 
These are just some of the topics covered. McLuhan's PhD required 300 pages of context before getting to Thomas Nash, who is supposed to be the topic of the thesis. His dissertation was approved in late 1943. One of the professors who read it, Professor Wilson, said that he learned more from it than anything he'd read in years. It remained unpublished until 2006, but in his later years, McLuhan complained his ideas had been widely used without citing him, as his unpublished thesis had been read by many since it was accessible through Cambridge before it was published. I want you to keep this notion of the trivium, rhetoric, grammar, and dialectic in your mind as we continue with McLuhan. We'll delve away from it for quite a bit, but I'll come back in the end. And don't worry if my description doesn't make complete sense. It took me some time to fully understand the relevance and meaning of it. Plus, it becomes for McLuhan something much deeper than the history I just went over. Dialectics will come to mean most of logic and philosophy since Aristotle, concerned with abstraction, and grammar comes to mean kind of reading the world in a way. This will require a lot more context, though. Um, I'll just read a quote from McLuhan to give you a taste of what's to come. Quote, The great alchemists were grammarians. From the time of the Neoplatonists and Augustine to Bonaventure and to Francis Bacon, the world was viewed as a book, that lost language of which was analogous to that of human speech. It makes sense that McLuhan preferred the methods of the grammarian because of his training in literature. <laughs> All right, I think I'll wrap this episode up now. We'll continue with this biography and introduction of McLuhan's ideas in the next episode. I want to try and keep the episodes at least under an hour, because so many times I've listened to one of those super long podcast episodes, like Hardcore History or something, and I, you know, I often stop halfway through and then never come back to it. So please stick around, and I'll see you in episode two.